0: righty hello everyone, and welcome to the dealmaker show so today we have a quite an interesting founder you know it's a, it's it's pretty amazing you know like the, the the bootstrapping experience that he has and and then also you know like what he's up to today so I think that we're gonna find quite exciting the the interview so I guess without further ado lo, let me welcome the guest today Oren Saslansky welcome to the show thank you for having me. excited to be here so originally born in San Diego. So how was how was life, you know, being born and raised there?
1: Uh, it's, it's a lovely place to grow up. Obviously, I'd, I'd argue the best weather in the world uh, and great beaches. And, um, you know, although I walk into every room with the bias that I must surf and uh, speak and move slowly. And I'd argue that I, I defy <laughs> those stereotypes on a, on a daily basis.
0: Right. And I know that uh, for you, I mean, you were you were used to the to the kind of like the the moving, the freight, I mean, all of, all of this stuff. I mean, your your parents were in this industry. So tell us about this.
1: Yeah, I grew up around it. They moved for, a they worked for a large household goods carrier, which would move you when your family wanted to move cross city, cross state, cross country, or somewhere around the globe. Uh, when I was 14, 15 years old, they decided to, to leave that company that they were employed by and start their own small SMB freight brokerages, again, specializing in household goods movement out of the home and uh, watching how their struggle and and the amount of effort they put in and the risks that they were willing to take with two teenage kids at home and one headed off to college and just all the stress and expenses that come along with that really inspired me to believe that this is doable, sort of if they could do it, um, you know, with all the responsibilities they had at at that point in their life, then certainly I could too. And so when I came out of school, I, I made the leap into entrepreneurship as well.
0: So obviously, your your mom, you know, went into entrepreneurship when you were in high school. Your father, when you were in college. So I guess, what kind of lessons, like let's say, like top three lessons, did they teach you about entrepreneurship?
1: I think it was just the tenacity of it, first and foremost. I mean, I watched my mom when she set up her first business again out of the home in and in, in a study at the house for a year and a half, uh, working through regulatory and compliance issues, filing documents. Uh, making phone calls, signing up trade partners and thinking like, gee, you're not even doing the business yet. You know, you've spent a year and a half preparing this business in order to be a business. And, you know, she just, she didn't even understand the question. She's like, this is what you do. You work hard if it's what you believe in. And if you believe in it, you're not going to fail. So that, that kind of tenacity, that grit, that relentless nature. And then the other part is when you're bootstrapping to really think about costs, you know, um, it's their money, you know, you're you're not spending anybody else's money. Um, it's your own, and and you tend to to be pretty austere, I guess I would say, uh, with those yeah. resources and making sure that every investment you make has some type of return. So watching her say, "I'm not going to invest in a new fax machine," you know, because this one works just fine, even though it's slow. Versus, "I will invest in a computer," you know, because I don't have that and and I need it to do my job. And just really thinking through at a tactical level how to deploy capital, and then maybe last. Um, is that balance of, you know, never give up until maybe you really need to think about it. You know, you don't want to be kind of myopically fixated uh, so much so on what's right in front of you that at the same time, you can't still zoom out and see the forest for the trees. And uh, they, they did succeed and they are successful. And at the same time, they would include me in conversations about how they thought about it. Like maybe we have a reserve date if we don't achieve our goals by a certain time frame, then we have to think about a pivot or we have to think about letting go of this. So having that clear kind of calculated, um, you know, reserve or BATNA uh, well out in advance so that they were not emotional about it when the time came to make the decision.
0: And obviously, I mean, it came the uh, opportunity knocking for you quite early. You were 21. So tell us about this first business that you started right out of college.
1: Yeah, I was 21 years old. Um, I actually worked for about three months for my mom's hustle good broker Uh, was fine. Great. You know, it was a three month experience. Um, it's not that I didn't enjoy working with my mom and and the team at that point, it was a real company, you know, maybe 30 employees or something. Um, and she properly said, you're going to be the filing clerk, you know, you're going to start at the bottom. And the idea was sort of, you'll grow and you'll learn the family business and, and maybe someday take it over. And, you know, really two things hit me. One is I want my mom to be my mom, not my boss. And I'm not invested in any of this yet. So like why put myself in a situation where 10 years from now, you know, you feel like Ugh, I don't like where I am and I wish I would have done it differently. And the second thing, and maybe even the more compelling notion for me was, again, with all the wide-eyed exuberance of a 21-year-old, I want to build something of my own, in, uh, of my own making, like test my potential, uh, unconstrain, you know, my creativity. Uh, what was my big idea? So at 21 years old, I'm going to start a trucking company. Um, you know, it's really pr- pretty simple, although very hard in the doing the barrier to entry is very, very low, uh, for about a thousand dollars. I was able to, you know, complete the regulatory requirements of the department of transportation and then, uh, set up, a, a a factoring relationship, which is a high cost lending relationship where I was paying 21 to 22%, uh, to borrow my money, um, lease, you know, a little bit of equipment, uh, recruit a couple of truck drivers, and kick it off. And in a way that it's, it's I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, that's crazy. I can't believe the whole thing worked. Why did why did 21 year old version of me think I could make it uh, maybe to a certain degree? I think to a large degree, it was my family's experience, like watching them and the accessibility that that grew in me seeing them just take the leap. But also kind of that ignorance is bliss. I mean, of course, the odds, the odds are stacked against all of us as entrepreneurs for starting businesses. And within reason, because you want to understand those risks and be thoughtful about your decision making going forward, there is a lot to be said for, I'm going to do this because I want to. Because at the end of the day, I feel like there's two kinds of people in this world, people who do things and people who say they're going to do things but don't actually do anything. And even from the age of 21, I knew I was in the former group, not the latter.
0: I hear you. I hear you. You know, something really interesting here is that the way that you were financing this, I mean, factoring you were, you, were, you, were, you were talking about, I think that, you know, for the folks that are listening, it would be probably interesting, you know, for you to really describe, you know, like how you did this and what exactly, you know, like factoring receivables to finance your business. How, how does that look like?
1: Sure. I think I'm the only now that I'm a venture backed kind of startup founder, the, the only one I've met that really deeply understands debt like this, because it was the only tool by which I had to capitalize my first business. So factoring right. means, you know, you, you've provided a service or a good. In my case, it was a service. Um, and you instead of sending the invoice to the customer, you, you, you send them a copy of the invoice. You also send uh, an invoice to a, a lender, a high risk because it is risky. Um, as well as high um, uh, interest rate lender. And they typically will give you 90%. There was a few really tough times, September 11, dot-com bubble burst, where I was able to talk my way into getting 105, 110%, but we'll stick to the 90% of the value of the invoice. So simply stated, if I just charged uh, a customer $1,000 for, for a service, for a transaction, I'd send them the bill as you would expect, but the bill would actually be stamped, this receivable has been sold to this firm. So interesting from an accounting standpoint for for any of your listeners that kind of think through on the finance side, uh, you're selling the receivable. You're selling the asset. You don't actually own it anymore. It's not on your balance sheet as an asset or a receivable. Um, It's now owned by the factoring firm. Uh, In in exchange for that, the factor sends me $900, 90% of that $1,000 invoice that day or the next day. So I instantly have capital long before I've had to pay, in this case, my truck driver, pay my salary to an employee or pay my rent. So it's a way of basically getting nearly prepaid um, at least 30 days sooner than, than you otherwise would, depending upon the terms and the, the, what's market for your industry, um, but albeit at a very high rate. The customer then, let's say hopefully 30 days later under net 30 terms, would send a check to the factoring company not to me to satisfy that debt. And the way that it works is the interest rate is so high that often after your advance 900 of the thousand that's owed, you're really never going to see that last hundred dollars that basically can often get eaten up in interest if the receivable is is old, meaning it takes the customer, you know, maybe many, many months to pay. So it's simply a very expensive way of getting capital. But the upside is it's almost always no recourse, meaning if it goes bad, I'm not obligated to to pay them back nor could I. I I didn't have the resources to anyways. Um, And it's a way of getting uh, capital into your business right away. Quite frankly, it's a great tool for those businesses that either just are not sort of outside equity financing type businesses, or in my case, for a very inexperienced entrepreneur who wouldn't have understand the equity markets regardless.
0: Got it. So obviously, you know, this company, uh, ENH, I mean, you took it from zero to 100 truck trailers. How did you do that? it
1: was very hard, you know, um, you know, so, the, <laughs> so you, you got to start, yeah, you got to start with a little bit of macro tailwinds, right? So it was 1996. If You kind of replay history, the economy was doing quite fine, was expanding. Um, you know, so there was, there was freight to be had. Um, we were a little bit differentiated. We did what's called air ride blanket wrap. So it's like special commodities, high value goods, like electronics and store fixtures, things like that. So it wasn't just in the, in a sea of everybody else. So you know, I've always tried to be differentiated. I think I have been truly differentiated at times. I've been slightly differentiated at other times, and told myself I was more than I thought. Um, but certainly, I've always aspired to that and understood conceptually why that mattered. Um, and then it's it's just the ultimate bootstrap, right? Like you produce a dollar in profit, and you reinvest a buck and a quarter. You know, you then find a way to produce two dollars in profit, and you reinvest two fifty. And you're like, wait, that math doesn't work. And the answer is, you're right, it doesn't work. Um, but that's exactly the mindset. And so the way that you pull that off is through working capital, you know, simply stated, uh, bringing in the money before you got to pay it out. And so anybody who's run a true cash flow bootstrapped kind of working capital intensive business, like a trucking company, like manufacturing, like a lot of service businesses, I would argue it's probably the majority of, of this economy, this SMB economy, is um, you get real good at picking which bills need to be paid today and which ones can wait until tomorrow. And you deal with a lot of noise and pain. You get everybody paid, don't get me wrong, but but you really grind it. And then on the receivable side, you get real good at making a lot of noise, you know, making sure that you're at the top of the list. Getting paid, and it's not for the faint of heart. It is really, really, really gritty. Um, it's not awesome, um, but it is how you build a bootstrap kind of working working capital intensive business, and so it's just a function of constant reinvestment. and And in, in that reinvestment, you have to be willing to forego your own personal kind of gain. So, if you're looking to grow the business to some amount of profitability and say, that's awesome, that profit on paper is now my paycheck, then it isn't going to work. You know, you're really setting yourself up for an environment where you're kind of paying all your employees more than you're taking yourself. But you're betting on yourself and you're building, you're building an asset.
0: Of course. And obviously for you, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because it seems like you were building this super nicely, but then all of a sudden it just felt like you reached like that that mental point where you told yourself that perhaps there had to be maybe like another chapter for you? Like what happened there?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit of groundhog day, you know, like the growth is, I mean, it is fast, but it it felt slow. Um, And it typically is when you're bootstrapping Um, and, you know, the model wasn't evolving nor did it necessarily need to. So, you know, after about five, six years, I just felt I'm ready for what's next. Um, In my case, I didn't think to sell the business. Honestly, it never occurred to me. I had a nice income that I thought could become passive by putting a leadership team in place. Obviously my income would go down because I'd be paying those folks, but but that was okay cuz it was never really about the money anyways, it was more about the the interesting work and the purpose of it. So, um, you know, but but the idea of selling a business, I mean, I just didn't even understand those things existed at that point. Uh and I'll start a freight brokerage. Like that seems more interesting. It's certainly less constrained. So when you're when you're a carrier or or trucker, you're constrained by the asset, right? If the dollar's across an asset business model, I've got this asset, I want to put as much revenue on board as possible, manage my costs, that equals profit. In the case of a freight broker, you're not constrained in that way. Do I want to be more of a consulting body? Do I want to be some type of value add? Do I want to focus on certain parts of the massive supply chain? Um, And so, you know, I stumbled across and and I had a customer come to me that I was providing hauling services to, a retailer called Charlotte Roos, which is like a mall chain of, of women's clothing. Come to me um, and say, hey, you do this one little thing for us. You haul truckloads of, of our store fixtures. We'd like you to take over the entire supply chain for our, our new store construction and, and major uh, remodels. Um, and so that was really the opportunity that, that changed my life once again, where I could now like build and develop programs and initiatives that involved all sorts of supply side partnerships, new technology to manage the business, new employees. It was the most interesting thing I'd ever done. And and you know, I apologize for saying unconstrained so often, but I think as a bootstrapper, I felt very constrained. I always had more ideas than I had resources. And um, so now, you know, I still have lots of resource constraints, but, but less because I wasn't investing in assets. I was largely investing in people and technology. Um, right. So I grew that business for about a decade, and it was a blast right up until, you know, it just didn't scratch the itch anymore, I guess. Felt like I was ready for more.
0: Okay, so then what happened next?
1: You know, made that uh, that conscious decision. I want to work on the industry, not in it. Um, there's there's you know a lot of ego involved in that, but but it's honest and felt that uh, I had the potential to, to do something really kind of big. Um, certainly had the experience as that that insiders have about how the parts that work really well in this industry, and maybe the parts where there's a big area of opportunity to uh, to reimagine and reinvent. And so for me, that was what's known as uh, LTL or less than truckload. Um, that in and of itself is a $65 billion a year industry in the United States, which is a subset of the $1 trillion general freight transportation supply chain industry in the U S. Um, and it's a, it's a traditional hub and spoke model. It's a hundred year old innovation. And, um, it's weird to think of a hub and spoke as an innovation, but it absolutely is a hundred years ago is like remarkable. Um, you know, the idea of like a vast terminal network where you have 300 terminals throughout the U S and freight kind of inches its way from terminal to terminal until so it ultimately makes it to you. Um, I felt like there's a better way. I mean, if you were to build that today, if you had 165 million LTL shipments, which is what's inside that $65 billion industry, you would do algorithmic carpooling. I would do a pure tech play. And uh, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that, wow, this would be interesting. This would in fact be by far the most interesting thing, by far the hardest thing I'd ever taken on. Um, I would not build my third freight company. I would build my first technology company, working in the freight space so went to a few advisors and mentors one a former you know operator tech founder himself very very successful and i said hey what do you think and the other is a business school academic but specializes in in startups He's just very you know one of my closest if not closest friend on earth and you know went to the two of them just as a friend and said what do you think i got this idea i think it's big um and they both said oh my god this is fantastic you should do it we'd like to help we'll write a seed check and you're going to have to raise venture capital. And it was very, very humbling, um, you know, going to people that I see as titans uh, and them saying, hey, I got my checkbook out. Let, let me invest. And I'm saying, "Whoa, well, I'm not asking anybody for money. I mean, that's not what at all this is. I'm just going to you because you're a friend and a mentor and saying, what do you think of this crazy idea I have? In fact, it made it far too real uh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, now it's out there. Um, and again, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of two kinds of people in this world. Those people. Who do things and those who say they're gonna do things and don't do them. And I am somebody who does things. So um, you know, we launched. Um and when what us was it? through a little bit of my, this you was, launch? you know, it was a side hustle for me. So I was still running Soul Source Logistics, um, very full time, um, and okay. spent about a year to a year and a half in 2015, from late 14 is when these conversations occurred, all the way through 2015. Uh, the three of you know. So having bootstrapped twice, I, I had a little bit of, of resources this time. So the three of us kind of angel invested ourselves into our own business. It was always meant that I, I would be the operator, the one running it. They would um, act as advisors um, and and seed investors, and we would build our proof of concept algorithm. Could we prove that we could build the technology and demonstrate unit economics, albeit theoretical, that if you took all these LTL less than truckload shipments and algorithmically put them into carpools. And instead of using the LTL hub and spoke to move your freight, which is the only way you can currently do it, instead I'll go to the truckload industry, which was my former past. That was ENH Transport, um, the big truck, and just have him make multiple pickups, drive to destination, and make multiple deliveries. Like really kind of simple in concept. It just isn't remotely how it's done. And there's all sorts of good reasons why it's not done that way today, meaning, quite frankly, just because it's really hard um, yeah. building scale and, and density and all that. Um, and so in the fall of 2015, actually in the spring of 2015, uh, my academic co-founder, uh, told me, Hey, you need some practice raising money because we're going to have to go out and raise money on this thing. And let's say about six months, um, let, I have lots of friends and colleagues. We'll set up some practice pitches and they'll be called out as practice pitches. You, you no, know, you're not asking for money. They're not offering, but they're willing to give you an hour of their time, which is very valuable. And I, I was very overconfident and said, hey, I've been selling for 20 years. You know, nobody's ever given me anything. I know how to close deals. And he was kind enough to say, oh, OK, <laughs> that's fine. Right. But we're going to do some practice pitches. Um, it was the most humbling experience of my life. Um, I, I wanted to give up 10 times. I just had that feeling of, you know, I don't know how to do this. I'm in over my league. These guys are smarter than me, They're more educated than me, They're more sophisticated than I am. Uh, there's no way I can do this. Uh, they're just tearing me down. And what I missed in that experience, unfortunately, is two things. One is that was their job. That's what we actually asked them to do. And I lost sight of that. Um, I was overconfident, underprepared, um, and uh, I got my ass handed to me, quite frankly. And, and, but that was, that was what it was meant to do. These people did it as a favor, right? It was a gift. The other thing was it was just new to me. I didn't know how to do it yet. And I look back on it now and I go, you know, you can learn how to do any given thing. It's just a thing you got to learn how to do. You might be great at it. You might just be good at it. But certainly, you can become like proficient in any given thing, given time and That's access right. to to the experience and practicing. So, what a gift, right? I got to go out and meet with real tier one venture capitalists in San Francisco, in Palo Alto, in Atherton, you know, in in, in Menlo, um, in SF, and and get to pitch these guys as a favor to my buddy. You know, amazing. Um, six months later, kind of put my first deck ever together. And, uh, you know, had multiple term sheets coming to me, and, and I couldn't believe it. You know, we're looking for kind of circa Q4 of 2015, kind of a million-dollar venture institutional seed round. Um, ended up raising about $1.3 million on a note, um, and I couldn't believe it. I honestly didn't believe it until the wire hit the bank account that you could share your ideas, your dreams with someone. And that they're crazy enough to believe you're going after a trillion-dollar industry. And that person would say, that is so interesting. I'm going to buy a piece of your imaginary sort of company uh, <laughs> and give you $1.3 million in return for that piece of the business. I mean, right. it, 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 and, but it did not speak to my ego at all. It, it, yeah. it really spoke to my gut, if not my heart. I felt so touched. I really did. I felt so humbled that somebody uh, and, would and trust can... me and believe in me.
0: I can't even imagine now because I mean, how much have you guys raised today? Now I think it's like seventy million
1: uh, raised over the last four years. So yeah, you know, things
0: change. Talking about belief. So just just so that the people you know that are listening get it, how do you guys make money with Flock Freight?
1: So we move freight. You know, so we charge a customer who has a need to move five pallets or fifteen pallets of of freight. The thing that they manufacture: chairs, tables, wine you know, solar panels, air conditioning machines, whatever. And they would pay a traditional hub and spoke operator, somebody with big trucks and little trucks and warehouses and terminals and, you know, labor, uh, they would pay them $500 per shipment to move that freight. And I say, well, uh, pay me $500 to do it. But the the reason why you want to do that is it's never going to see the inside of a terminal. We're going to guarantee what we call a hubless experience. We're going to move it as part of a truckload. It's like saying, I'm going to sell you part of a big truck whereas you can't really buy part of a big truck on your own, um, I can consolidate or aggregate virtually in the cloud using very sophisticated software. Um, I can aggregate all that volume and sell you part of a truck. And the benefits are the LTL industry, and these are just points of fact, have an 80% on-time pickup. The truckload industry that I bring to the table has a 98% on-time pickup. The LTL industry has a 55% on-time delivery, the truckload industry has a 98% on-time delivery. The LTL industry has like a three to four percent damage rate. The truckload industry has a fraction of a single percent damage rate. Transit times are, are anywhere from 25 to 50% faster in the truckload industry. There's no loss and theft. You can't lose things. Things don't get stolen. I'm I'm bringing you know a much higher quality what we call mode of transportation. I'm guaranteeing pickup, delivery, transit time, loss, theft, zero damage for initially the idea was slightly lower price point than anybody else could offer. And we'd use our technology in order to deliver that solution.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so I guess uh, now, you know, I mean, obviously you guys have been growing pretty quickly. I mean, how how many employees do you guys have now? Uh, we have
1: about 140, 150.
0: Wow. So how does the operation look like? I mean, for the folks that are, that are listening in terms of size. Um, Meaning
1: like the proportion of talent where they sit within the firm? Like, or... like,
0: yeah, like what's the distribution of the talent? I mean, the offices yeah. or anything, you know, on the on the structure of the business that perhaps, you know, gives a picture of the people listening.
1: Yeah, so we've got a, a bunch of folks in the Philippines, probably about 40 in Manila, who work on um, administrative back office support work. We also um, have a, a group of nine of them working on direct sales to our what we call SSMB, like super small, medium business um, customers. So a manufacturer who might only buy once or twice a month, the, the CAC doesn't work in uh, the United States to acquire customers like that. And the LTVs are too low. So we do that um, in the Philippines. Then we've got about a dozen, maybe 15 folks in Chicago. The reason for Chicago was that really is the traditional freight epicenter of the world. So we had a lot of really smart, sophisticated talent in San Diego that are kind of your air quote startup folks. But uh, And while I'm a freight guy, um, and I've hired a few freight people in San Diego, San Diego and Southern California in general is not a freight hotbed. So uh, we opened up in Chicago and wanted to inject in a really thoughtful way some real superstar freight horsepower um, that could bring a lot of those best practices and, and technical expertise into the firm. And then in San Diego, there's, you know, whatever the math is, 80 people or something, 90 people. And that's, um, you know, the, the middle market enterprise customer sale, which is also done in Chicago. Um, we have um, kind of biz ops and sales ops. Um, but, you know, uh, of key interest, of course, I would think is uh, all of R&D, right? So we have your kind of standard full stack engineering working on the platform, working, you know, we have data engineers on the infrastructure side. But what really makes us flock freight versus like any other tech company that would be hiring technical talent is the uh, algorithms uh, scientists, the research scientists, and the data scientists. So we have, if you think about what we do algorithmically, it's actually like really, 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 really hard. So the quick example I can give you, and I don't want to kind of nerd out too much uh, from a technical standpoint, because I just don't know how that'll land with the audience. But we'll use a very practical use case, and that's um, Uber pool or Lyft line. I'm sure everybody is roughly familiar with the idea of carpooling as a consumer. Those firms have to think through um, constraints over like how many stops if you took a pool you'd be willing to sit through between origin and destination, right? You're not gonna sit in a carpool if it takes two hours to travel two miles because it made 78 stops between where you got on and where you got off. There's like a pain and suffering constraint. But what, what Uber and Lyft do not have to consider and I don't mean to pick on them. We don't remotely compete, right? These are consumer services. I'm in freight, so that's not the angle here. But it's just a good, good use case to highlight because they're so well understood. Is um, in the case of like Uber Pool and Lyft Line, the the uh, algorithms over there do not have to consider um, my race, my gender, my age, my weight. They don't have to consider, uh, you know, my eye color, my hair color. They don't have to consider any of those things. They don't have to consider if I get in the right side of the car, the left side of the car, the front seat or back seat. And they don't even have to consider what side of the road I get on. Even though they suggest to me get in on the west side of the street, you know, he'll flip a U and get me on the east side if that's what's required. In the case of freight and what our algorithmic um, technology has to do, is freight is all different. And we have to understand that, which means we have to constrain to it. So you have to know the length and the width, the height, the weight, the density, the commodity, the value of those commodities, whether or not it's like stackable. Can you put a pallet on top of a pallet or can you not? Um, we deal, we buy in a spot market, which is super dynamic and more volatile than we've ever seen in my 25 years in freight right now because of what's going on with the pandemic. And so we have to be able to have pricing intelligence and automation, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, the, the technology that we've built, you know, people would say like, oh, how hard can it be? Um, very, very hard. You know, we've got patents now on pooling technology that Uber and Lyft don't, which I think speaks to they've never needed to think about constraining uh, carpooling the way that we do. Freight is actually much, much, much harder.
0: Got it. So so one of the questions that I typically ask the founders that come on the on the show is knowing what you know now i mean you've you've been at it now third business you know the first two you know bootstrapping now more on the on the hyper growth path you know like with with the equity you know partners what what would you say you know like if you if you could go back in time and have a chat with your younger self with that younger or in, you know a, a conversation you know, like and and really give yourself one one piece of advice before launching a business what would that be, and why, knowing what you know now, and perhaps you know this is the twenty one year old Orrin that was thinking about launching the first business?
1: Yeah, I think I would say, um, for me, bootstrapping en route to to equity and venture was the right path. Uh, but what I would tell myself is, move faster, be more honest with yourself to the degree that you don't feel challenged or you feel underutilized i I stuck around in each business for a few years too long, so i'm I'm so thankful for those experiences. Uh, and how much I learned and the people I met and got to work with along the way. But I could have shaved a year or two off the first one. I probably could have shaved four or five off the second one. But I think I was a little held back by fear. You know, the idea of making a big leap and what if I fail? And realizing now that, like, look, you have so much air cover. The probabilities are that we're all going to fail. Like, the probabilities are abysmal. Like, no one should really do this in a rational way. So if you're so inclined to do it anyways, the sooner you get on doing it, the sooner you get on to either winning or failing, But failing at a younger age where you still have more time to go out and try, what's next? So I I really, what I would tell myself is, hey, good for you. You're 21. You want to start a trucking company. By 23, 24, you probably knew that you're ready for what's next. Instead of kind of kidding myself or just maybe buying a nice car and thinking that's what success looks like, Um, because it isn't. Success looks like filling your life with purpose and working as hard as you possibly can to realize that vision.
0: I love it. I love it. Oren, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um,
1: probably the easiest thing to do is just drop me an email, O R E N, Oren at flockfreight.com.
0: Amazing. Well, Oren, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker show today. Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com